This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be chatting with Alexa Hampton about her new book and her resolutions for the coming year. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including a controversial leaked memo from Wayfair's CEO, the breakup of a successful design duo, and a look at what trend forecasters are saying about 2024. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Home's executive editor, Fred Nicholas. Hi, Fred. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? Great. Happy New Year. How you doing? I'm doing okay. <laughs> this is always uh, the roughest <laughs> holiday re-entry, um, but I'm doing fine. Did you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year yourself? It was delightful. I find the time between Christmas and New Year's, even more so than over the summer, is a time where I feel like no one is really looking for you too hard. So, so <laughs> yes. you can really check out in a much more meaningful way. And I absolutely did. That's very true. Uh, it's also very difficult to check back in, which I'm currently <laughs> currently experiencing. Uh, I hope our listeners won't notice. But uh, but I hope you had a nice holiday and enjoyed making cookies and doing other things. I did. I did. I even I even got uh, I got a KitchenAid mixer for Christmas. <gasps> I'm, a, I'm a hobby baker. And my mom, yes. who always gives the best presents, as, as mothers tend to do, got me a KitchenAid mixer, which I've wanted for a long time. Wow. It is going to cut into my fitness-related resolutions, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll deal with that in 2025. Do you, do you have? Are you a New Year's resolution kind of guy, Dennis? Do you have any? Do you know, for years when our children were little, we used to make them come up with resolutions and we kept them in this beautiful little brown leather book and every year we would we would go back and torture them and and revisit the resolutions from the year before and then eventually one of them just spoke up on behalf of both of them and said we'd like to not do this anymore and so so we stopped yeah the book of shame this is not this is not a parenting podcast this is a no. design business podcast but what do you what do you think about resolutions fred what about yourself make them and break them that's my that's my <laughs> hobby and i'm sticking to it so <laughs> all right we're going to get into the news in just a moment but first a quick break this podcast is sponsored by leloy maker of rugs pillows and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. Leloy is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year with the debut of a new rug collection that Emir Leloy is calling their best collection yet. See that collection and more at Las Vegas Market this month. Visit LeloyRugs.com to make an appointment today. And stay tuned for more anniversary programming throughout the year. That's L-O-L-O-I-Rugs.com and follow them on Instagram and TikTok at Leloy Rugs. Okay, we're back. First up, a little controversy around Wayfair, Fred. Yes? Yes, a little Christmas uh, Christmas Wayfair scandal to, <laughs> to titillate everybody over the holidays. Yeah. Um, first, a little bit of news around the company. First, apparently the company is a profitable uh, for the only the second time in its 20-year history. Uh, in an email sent by the company's CEO, Niraj Shah, to employees late last month, uh, he let them know that A, Wayfair was quote-unquote winning again. And he also dispensed some advice uh, for the coming month, saying that employees will be expected to work long hours while 
quote unquote, blending work and life, as he phrased it. Uh, and the leaked memo or letter, however you want to refer to it, drew significant pushback on social media. It was, <laughs> caused a little bit of a firestorm. Not quite pity city, but uh, definitely people people uh, did not did not love it. Although I do see the Wall Street Journal referenced pity city to bring our yes. minds back to that. So clearly they drew a, a similar line there. Using the word lazy in the in the memo didn't didn't seem to work well for a lot of people. There were there were a lot of reasons that people reacted to this. What's your what's your sense? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's just not a good look to send out this big like CC everyone in the company. You all have to work harder and work late. You know, it just it just looks bad from a PR perspective. You know, obviously the timing to just around the holidays, I think probably struck people the wrong way. I do think though that once something gets out of the, you know, the confines of a, you know, individual company culture and just gets churned through the social media machine, it almost loses any connection to what actually was going on at Wayfair. It's possible that, you know, Niraj was referencing some very specific things that had happened recently. He said as much that, you know, the letter was referring to people misquoting him within the company. He talked about there being these things called Niraj-isms, which is uh, just sort of enjoyable. I wonder if they're Scully-isms that we can uh, identify. <laughs> I hope so. I yes, hope people yeah. are keeping track of the Scully-isms and trying to live their life by them. But <laughs> I, I agree. And yeah. he seemed to want to update, oh, some of the things that I might have said in the past. Here, I've got some new ones, like don't be lazy and also answer your emails on the weekends it sort of sounded like right so yeah i mean that's that's why it listen and to your point these are always really challenging messages to deliver and i'm not certain that it's ever a good idea to try and deliver them on mass to people all at once these are really hard communications to to land properly and then when they fall into the hands of any number of news organizations. I saw CNN did a piece and Fox News did several pieces about it. So it's just never going to end well. Yeah, the big bad media, us us accepted, of course, yeah. I mean, I think you can sort of boil it down to praise in public, uh, scold in private, you know what I mean? But I, I do think that, you know, the broader conversation around, you know, I guess management versus employees is a really big one in the culture right now, just because I feel like over COVID, the arrangement about how people are going to work, whether they can work remote, make their own hours, whether they have to come in, all of that got re-scrambled and we're sort of seeing the solidifying of new rules around it. You know, th- there is a, a bigger struggle going on here. And I think that's why this resonates and becomes a viral moment. It doesn't just become, uh, you know, a, a talking point in isolation. Well, and I think there's also, and and social media just fans these flames, but I, I think there's this growing generational perception that uh, many people out there seem to think that some generations aren't as hardworking as other generations. And so they call out hardworking several times. And again, yeah. I, 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 it never sounds good to to say, I've never heard anyone be successful being lazy. I, I just don't yeah. see how that how that motivates anyone. But but clearly it was a it was a sort of a cross generational message. And uh, again, it just yeah, really hard to learn. I, I think this stuff just gets so warped by social media. You know, yeah. it, it turns into the, oh, young people don't like to work. And, you know, yeah, as, exactly. as as we speak, our very hardworking Gen Z producers listening to the conversation, <laughs> and I know it's going to work probably is, harder than both of us. Exactly. The so, hardest working person within our organization. And so, so, yeah. So it's a little ridiculous. But, you know, I don't Agreed. know. Agreed. The, there was another message sort of, uh, I guess, 
not exactly buried, but was not really the part that went viral, which was just that Wayfair is profitable, or at least Niraj sort of seemed to say it was, which is a big deal because Wayfair over the course of a 20 year history has really only been profitable during the peak of COVID. And it's long been, uh, you know, a sticking point for investors and observers of the company that, you know, they're doing all this business, but they are, they're not making money. So what did you make of that, Dennis? Well, there I have a little bit of trouble because they weren't really profitable. They were EBITDA profitable. And if you remove depreciation and taxes and amortization, well, then you may as well be able to remove anything you want to and say you earned money. So they're saying they're EBITDA profitable and not actual generally accepted accounting principles profitable. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, to scaffold that a little bit, I mean, I think probably most people have heard the term EBITDA, but it's just, it's a way to characterize your earnings that makes a lot of exceptions for, you know, depreciation and taxes and, and is, it's not an irrelevant financial statistic, but it, it is a way to sort of, you know, make a, make a rosier picture than, than may really be going on. But I do think that like clearly the company is moving towards profitability. I mean, like, no it, question. It, you know, and, and it's funny, we talk to people who are investors in the home world a lot, and several of them have told me that they think Wafer actually will be profitable and that there is some credibility to this idea that if they turn off all the R&D and all the expansion, then they, they can become a money printing machine just like Amazon was uh, uh, a decade ago. So, you know, I don't know, like this is a tempest in a teapot, but I do think that they're moving in the right direction, at least in terms of the numbers. Uh, I don't know about the employees working there, but uh, in terms of the numbers that investors care about, even if they're not quite there yet, this is a step towards where they need to be, I think. I definitely one to keep an eye on. Okay, moving on, we're going to talk about the Borelec brothers. One of the design industry's biggest duos is breaking up. French designers and brothers Ronan and Erwin Borelec recently announced that they are parting ways professionally. There was a wonderful article in The Times that talked about what happened in great detail, including their tendencies to clash over details quite dramatically in public. Fred, what'd you make of the news? Yeah, this was a great article by Julie Lasky in the Times. And uh, it's interesting. First of all, I just want to apologize for our respective pronunciations of Borelec. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly right. Julie helpfully included a pronunciation guide, but now we're sort of second guessing whether whether we're reading the pronunciation guide right. So so we beg forgiveness on that front. But yeah, they're they're very in a world of product design, which doesn't mint a lot of stars. These are these are very famous uh, designers, certainly in Europe. They've worked with Vitra, Capolini, Linia Rose. They worked with Floss. Uh, probably most people listening to this podcast, if they haven't heard of them, would recognize a lot of their products. They had a very famous the plume sofa for Linia Rose. A lot of uh, modular workspace stuff for Vitra. So these are these are this is a very famous uh, design duo and. You know, I think if there's one thing we know about famous design duos is that it's difficult to difficult to keep them together, especially when they're brothers. In some ways, it's kind of miraculous that they've uh, been together this long. Exactly, Fred. How on earth? I know that I could no more work hand in glove with my sister all day long than go to the moon. And these two brothers, when they were first working together, they would literally work at the same table. It wasn't until years into their partnership that they finally got their own separate desks. What? How <laughs> How did they not be at each other's throats? Although it sounds like really in, in recent years, they've, they've really been on very separate tracks for, for some time. Yes? Yeah. I mean, I think like sort of the unspoken backstory to most big creative partnerships is that 
even if the two names are on the door, a lot of times people are either working in tandem sort of separately with their own clients or on their own projects or maybe kind of weighing in here and there with each other. I think that's sort of often the case with interior design duos as well, is that the sort of long-running successful partnerships are either one person has a very specific role, like they handle the finance and the businesses, the other person is creative, or they have their own clients. It is, I think, rel- pretty rare to have two people working at full force on the same creative decisions. It's just It's just very, very difficult, and it's kind of miraculous when it works. Um, I think this is also sort of interesting to me as a story simply because there are so few people like this. I mean, how many product designers you know do we know by name, especially in America? I mean, I think these are these are famous designers certainly in Europe, but I mean I I don't know that you know everyone will have heard of Ronan and Irwan Burlek. I mean why is that the case, do you think, Dennis? Well it, it, exactly. I mean it's it's so hard I don't, I don't know if it is so hard to continually come up with fresh new designs that catch on a, a, as they have been able to. I, I think it's very hard looking at that plume sofa that you referred to, for example, earlier at Ligne Rosé. It, it's very hard to come up with a new sofa design. We, we've spoken to many people on the podcast who've said it's all been done. And, yeah. and, and so I think to consistently come up with fresh, innovative design is really challenging. And that's why their name, I think, has stuck out. They're often compared to Philippe Stark or, or, or you know, just a handful of other people because it's so hard to come up with many names that have so consistently come up with something new. It's funny that you phrase it that way, though, because I, I sort of think of it as more of like a marketing thing than a you know, the challenge of being consistently great over the years. I mean, I, I think there are people who product designers who are consistently great. It's just that it's like the way the business works. It's like they design for companies that market their product to someone else who sells it to someone else who sells it to someone else. And the original creator's name kind of gets lost in that. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting. It's like so few consumers really connect even with a home brand at all that to connect with both a home brand and a furniture designer or a product designer is maybe maybe a step too far um but i do think it's kind of a shame you know i'm going to bring the dupes into this because why not uh but i think one of the reasons one of the reasons why people i think are so comfortable getting like dupes of like a west elm chair or dupes of an rh sofa or a linear is a sofa is because they don't associate it with an individual creator the way that they do with a fashion designer for example i think it feels more personal and more offensive on some level to copy the work of a fashion designer because you know the person um and i think we should we should emphasize product designers more here especially here in the u.s i i completely agree and and i think that many of the companies that that worked with the brothers recognized the value in their name and and put it forward as a result and they felt that it was going to enhance the perception of the product and make it more saleable and and, and i think you're absolutely right that so much of it is marketing and if more of these designers these industrial designers these furniture designers lighting if they were better known i i would love to think that people would think twice before knocking them off but i don't really because i think people <laughs> Love to just knock things off. <laughs> well, I, I think both both things can be true. I think it can make a marginal difference towards the good. And I, I don't know. I just think 
we we don't have enough personalities in this industry and i obviously we've got a lot of personalities that you and i know personally but in terms of stars that the average person recognizes i would love if there was a household name in in furniture design you know that would be so cool so i i don't know how to get there i'm taking this as an open call for suggestions on how to mint the <laughs> next uh big american furniture designer star so let's 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 brainstorm some ideas and try and get there good i love that Okay, speaking of a star in the furniture industry, there was an IKEA auction, Fred, that uh, seemed to go down for quite the price. Yeah, so last month, the world's oldest auction house, uh, which is based in Stockholm and has a difficult-to-pronounce name, so I'm not going to try. But anyway, they they had a sale of some vintage IKEA furniture that pulled in uh, more than $40,000, which maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but keep in mind, this is IKEA, so the original prices were probably uh, in in the $10 to $50 range. Uh, And then earlier last year, an IKEA chair was purchased for a record-high $18,970 $18,970 auction price, which sold for $29.1958. So yeah, kind of an interesting uh, little moment for uh, vintage I- Ikea. So do we think this is the power of nostalgia? Is this people, oh, I remember that chair from when it first came out? Or or do we think that there's something in the IKEA brand that people are starting to look at it from an investment standpoint and think, oh, this will appreciate in value and I'll hold on to it? What do you make of it? Well, I think it's it's probably a little bit of both, but I do think eighteen thousand nine hundred and seventy dollars is a lot to pay for. Simply, I remember that. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I think that sort of speaks to there being a little bit more of an investment quality to it, if, if purely because it's sort of part of design history. Um, it is interesting, though. I, I think um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about why this is the case. Like, why are people willing to pay this much money for, you know, a, a brand that is associated with low price furniture? And I think it's because one one thing that's simply true is that I, Ikea is one of the, you know, I can't think of another, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't think of another sort of vertically in- integrated retailer that makes its own product and sells its own product under its own name that's been around for that long. I, I, are there other big examples? I'm just not thinking of especially one of the global reach of ikea well and so tell me tell me how that equates this this long-term value in the in the product tell me how you put those two together i mean i think any company that lasts that long just has an inherent sense of history that is on some level valuable or people associate uh value with um, but I also think IKEA in particular has always been a very like forward-looking brand. If you look at some of the pieces that were sold, they always feel like they're a little bit on the cutting edge of design. I know that the company is often accused of knocking off f- famous contemporary designers, but at least they are looking towards contemporary design for inspiration uh, for IKEA. So I think it sort of speaks to IKEA's longevity. They're sort of stat- I don't want to call them a cult brand because they're one of the biggest furniture companies in the world, but you know their their sort of status is this cool sort of forward-looking brand, and their longevity makes their pieces worth this much. But that's just my guess. What about you? What do you think? No, no, I, I agree. And I, and, I, and I think you know the Colt brand notion probably isn't far off. I think there's a real IKEA fan base. And I, and I think that we often talk about IKEA or others talk about IKEA as a fast fashion, fast furniture brand. And here are these vintage pieces that have obviously held up. So it, it, it turns out that they they can last and they they capture this moment in in time and i think that they're they're really i mean again whether it whether nostalgia is an element of it whether people are just 
admirers of this of this brand and how far it's come and whether they they see some of the the looks that went down at auction as sort of coming coming back in a way there was a lot of talk about 70s coming back and the, and some of the look and feel of those pieces so i, I don't know it's it, it's very interesting it's not it's not at the level of antiques obviously and again $40,000 for what was it 122 pieces so it, it wasn't it wasn't a picasso being sold but it, it it's interesting that there's clearly this this group out there that recognizes the significance of these pieces and wants to own them at a much higher price than they would have originally sold for yeah, and I mean, I think like I agree that forty thousand dollars isn't like some oh my god type number because right. obviously you could spend that much, you know, buying one thing from Carpenter's Workshop, for example. But I do think like think about like the retail level brands that are around now, and imagine eighty years from now, how many of them will a still exist, and b people will see the value in them. I think it's probably pretty few and far between. So. I, I feel like if I go any further, I'm going to cast aspersions on, on retail furniture <laughs> brands, which I do not mean to do. Who uh, else do you want to insult, Fred? Yes, go ahead. Yes. No no one is the answer. <laughs> but I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting item. Yeah. No, no, no. I agree. Okay. Moving on. Trends for the new year. So it's officially 2024. And with the turning of the year comes a rush of predictions about what design trends will be in vogue. Fred, I know you took a look at this year's trend forecasts. What did you what did you find? A highly scientific look at this year's <laughs> at year's trend forecast. No, I, I just did sort of a little roundup. I read Wall Street Journal's article about what designers say will be in in 2024, uh, Architectural Digest, El Decor's House Beautifuls. And I also looked at some predictions that uh, we collected here at Business of Home. I, I wish I had sort of like an auctioneer's cadence because then I could sort of read off <laughs> curved architectural elements are in, Grand Millennium is over, Silver's in, Earth Tone's out. Blah, blah, blah. But uh, just to sort of briefly sum up what I think are the prevailing notions from the trend forecasters uh, for this year. The three things that I think most people agree will be big in 2024 are brown, the color brown, curviness just in general, and metallics, like silver in particular. What do you think of those three things, Dennis? Brown, curvy, and metallics. Okay. Mm. Well, that's, that's something to look forward to. I'm always curious about a particular color and what it says about whether people are feeling optimistic or pessimistic. <laughs> Designers tell me darker colors means they're less optimistic and brighter colors are more optimistic. So I don't know how I should feel about brown. Sounds, mm, I don't know, sounds a little pessimistic. But then you've got those metallic tones and and curvy. So is that is that curvy sofas? Is that a lot of Vladimir Kagan happening in the in the coming year? I don't know. What do we what do we think? I think it's every I think it's I think it's furniture. I think it's also like architectural details and things like that. Mm. Um I don't know. I, I will say that like th this felt sort of accurate to me. I mean, I, I will say that when you look at these trend forecasts on some level, if you look at how they put them together, it's an editor reaching out to one person and the one person is saying what they like. And so sometimes you get these weird little outliers like chartreuse is coming back. You know, I, w whether those things will actually happen and be real, I don't know. But the fact that so many people pointed to those three things and the fact that I at least anecdotally feel like those three things are big in the market suggests to me that we're, uh, we're definitely in for some, some curvy metallics uh, with a note of brown in, in the next year. <laughs> 
Yeah, look for look for that. Meanwhile, flying in the face of all of the sort of trend talk was this article out of the Financial Times uh, by Joy Lodico, who who talked about uh, maybe you shouldn't pay any attention to trends at <laughs> yes. all. And she's got her sofa that she's had for the last 20 years and she loves it and it looks great. And uh, don't be distracted by everyone telling you what's going to be hot in the year ahead. What, what, what do we what do we think about that? Yeah, I love the headline of this article, which was, where am I supposed to find an algae green croissant-shaped sofa? <laughs> which probably <laughs> is a, a fair parody of, of how these trend forecast articles go. Yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of like an eternal, a perennial question in the design industry is like, how much do trends matter? You know, I think it's, it's a funny thing because I do think that we all, we all perceive that, you know, during certain eras, the terracotta kitchen is big and then it goes away. So obviously we do move through stylistic uh, movements. But if you ask any designer, do you pay attention to trends? They'll say no. So there is this kind of weird, uh, you know, paradox at, at, uh, at, the, at the heart of the industry, so to speak. I do think like home is just obviously not, you know, the idea that there are all these micro trends like coastal grandma and anyone is really rushing out and replacing their entire interior with coastal grandma stuff is, is always silly though. You know, coast, the micro trends are just kind of for fun. I, I largely think, uh, but I don't know. I do think trends matter a little bit. I thought this article was a little bit, a little bit too on the stodgy end of the, the matrix. What do you think? I agree with you. The financial times article was, uh, was a little bit overly dismissive perhaps, but I think to your point that for a lot of the designers that we talk to, the answer really does lie in, of course you want to be aware of of trends and and where things are going but the length of the projects that so many of these designers are working on what does it even matter to know what's going to be hot in 2024 when you might not even be installing until 25 or 26 and so how is it not even outdated by the time you're actually installing it right yeah, I mean, this is a really, we could have a whole podcast episode about this. It's, it's complicated because I think yeah. you say that, but at the same time, we all know that like a nineties terracotta kitchen, you know, the Italian Tuscan kitchen looks out of date. You know, we, we acknowledge that and no one or very few people would, would start a project in 2024 saying, let's get that. Cause you know, that's going to stick around forever. Uh, but at the time, I'm sure it did feel like it was going to stick around forever. So I don't know. The, the slow movement of trends and aesthetics is is a fascinating subject. And I, I feel like it's it's endlessly interesting simply because it's so hard to put your finger on. Should you ignore it? Should you pay attention to it? How much? How little? And I also think there's a counter argument to be made about, well, you, you want the room to look timeless. Well, you know, I, I understand that. But there's a risk of, you know, timeless just being a, a stand in for boring, you know, something that just takes no risks or makes no, uh, you know, reference to the contemporary age and just feels like the mathematical average of every room that's ever been designed over the past hundred years. So I don't know. It's a fascinating subject. I just simply like the headline, where am I supposed to find an algae green croissant shaped sofa? <laughs> um, and uh, I, I'd urge people to check out both all the trend prediction articles, especially business of homes and, uh, enjoy Lodico's piece because they're they're fun reads even if you don't happen to agree with either one of them no no I completely agree and uh, thank you to all the many people who sent me the El Decor article talking about Boucle being here to stay message received <laughs> loud and clear <laughs> alright that's it for the news but there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com including a recap of the best business lessons designers and industry leaders shared with us in 2023 we'll be back in a minute but first a quick break. This 
This year, Lenoy celebrates its 20th anniversary in the home textile industry. The family-run company began with Amir Lenoy and just four other employees in 2004. Since then, Lenoy has introduced over 800 rug collections, opened five showrooms, and has almost 600 employees. They're sincerely thankful to their customers and partners who have come along on this journey these past two decades. Stay tuned for more Laloy anniversary news by visiting laloyrugs.com and following at laloyrugs on Instagram and TikTok. Okay, so today I am joined by decorating legend and author Alexa Hampton and Hall of Fame member AD100. I mean, the list is long. I was waiting for you to say it. And if you hadn't said it, don't worry, I would have covered it. You would have stepped in. Hey, listen, uh-huh. I appreciate that. I appreciate you backing me up like that. And frankly, if if you feel there's any recognition you haven't yet received, Kennedy that you Center? want to, <laughs> I Kennedy mean, Center? Uh, yeah. Mark Twain, yeah. prize for humor, so many things, Dennis, so many things. <laughs> I've been overlooked for so yes. long. Really, I don't know why anyone is is holding back. And and frankly, after after going through your your recent book, watch this segue, Alexa. I think, frankly, you should be considered for the Mark Twain Prize. I like how you got us back on track. I see what you're doing. This is this is why I make the big bucks. So let's talk about this wonderful book, Design, Style, and Influence, which I have sitting with me right here. What was the thinking behind it? Why did you Why did you want to write this book? Well, it had been 13 years since my last book had come out. <laughs> I was starting to get a little embarrassed. And I kept going to book signings and signing those books. And they're like, is this your latest book? And I would answer, yes, it is. And by latest, I mean <laughs> not in this past decade, but... <laughs> right, but... The the problem of books for people in design, and they're vital to our careers, but the mm. problem is, well, it used to be that you, there would only be one book and that it would be at the end of your career. And that is not the case anymore because it has a huge marketing effect. It is now, as Jesse Carrier said, when he goes for an interview, the owner's rep will say to him, oh, just give us your book. And he'd be like, well, I don't have a book. How about my portfolio? Right. <laughs> and How about my life's that? work here before yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> then that was no longer sufficient. So I like, oh, mm. I guess I'm going to write a book. So so nowadays your first book is, you know, what do you think and showing projects. Then the second book in my case was, okay, let's make it a little more granular. Let's talk about details, details, details. And then... If you're lucky enough to get a third book, what is it? Is it gardening now? Like I don't garden. Uh, is it one project sometimes? It's a conundrum, but you do need to continue your public outflow. Never has that been more true than now when so many people won't let me publish. Now the book becomes really important. So many people won't publish projects. Yeah. And it, you, yeah. it used to be that they were anonymous. You know, they were always anonymous. And then I traded stories with friends about uh, not being able to publish because of works of art and insurance. Right. Okay. So so people couldn't show their artwork. For, yeah. They weren't for, allowed to show their yeah. artwork. Yeah. Then security became the even bigger concern, ultimately. 
But the, the other effect that that has is that what is coming through to the public to see and to learn and to grow in their tastes is either associated with very big celebrities who mm-hmm. are already out there, whose houses might be seen in a different medium, and people who maybe don't always have the greatest art, such as myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> But this is this is interesting because this is going to have a net effect on what the public who consumes images of interiors is is going to be fed, what they're ingesting, what information they're getting. So there's going to be there's going to be a res- there is a response to that. There is an effect, and it means that what's going on sometimes at the highest level of professional design is behind closed doors which is a bummer because we all need to see those things. Right. And so what's different about showing it in a book? What are the what are the permissions that are that are given? What what happens to all of all of the insurance issues when you say, "Oh, but I would love to include your project in my upcoming coffee table book." Um you get a yay or a nay, and as you know from looking at my book, I'm not, I'm not mm. including other people's projects. I'm really <laughs> including my house, and but I mean a few people's houses that don't exist any longer. And I mm. was very lucky enough to secure the permission. I was also fortunate in that because the book is in large part about inspiration, and for me, my holy grail interiors that I have admired in my life. A lot of them are public. So it behooved the institution to allow us to come in and take photographs because, you know, they want people to know of them and celebrate them as well. So what happens culturally when people are just seeing the the homes of celebrities? And, And again, a lot of these celebrity homes, wonderful interior designers working on these projects, I get it. But also it it's not necessarily the best work that could be shown. It sounds like you were suggesting and often much of the best work we're not seeing. Yeah, if it's Martin Lawrence Ballard, I'm down. I'm psyched. Right, I'm like, it's exactly. Clam. That's where but, my um, mind was going to. Like, yeah, sure, show me as Martin. As long as great, I've got but... him showing him st- um, his stuff, I'm great. <laughs> right. But the effect of some really vital, exciting work happening behind closed doors is that our education through observable interiors will be slowed. Help me understand what you mean. Um, In fashion, if haute couture is behind closed doors and all we're seeing is uh, a handful of couture spaces and then the rest of it ready to wear, that cuts us out of seeing the very exciting ideas that are going on behind those closed doors. And Mm -hmm. I want to see those exciting ideas. In the absence of those new exciting ideas, maybe that's why I'm so extra nostalgic about old exciting ideas, because I can go back to them over and over and pour over them and adore them like I do in this book. Now you see what I did right there? I do, I do, (laughs) nice, nice. Okay, so the book is about some of these hallmark interiors or places that had a huge effect on my developing brain, young brain and now brain, how these spaces have mean a whole lot to me. And 
as we were saying about the, the things that are happening behind closed doors, we need to always be feeding. The design community needs to be fed. We need to see these images. We need to share them. We need to talk to them about each with each other because they're so vital to what we do. And the places in the book, with a couple of exceptions, I was able to secure photos for or take new photos of. And these places just, I never tire of them. I never tire of them. Uh, when Givenchy's sale hit in 1991 or 92, I was it was I was in college. I was interning for my father, and it just changed my life. Similarly, Bill Blass's interiors, yeah, just blow my mind. The Casa de Pilatos I talked about um, in the book. These are just major pilgrimages. The Johnson Museum, I mean, everybody in, uh, you know, the Villa Necchi would be another major uh, station of the cross in uh, this design, <laughs> in this design pilgrimage. Well, and but, but you know, it, it raises such an interesting issue. And I wonder, I, I mean, so it, the project can't get published in the shelter publications. So one way to go is the is the book. And, and that's that's wonderful. But as you say, as a as a fellow designer, how do we, how do you get to see all of these wonderful projects that all of your colleagues couldn't get published? You know and, what we and, should start and, doing? We should start having salons where uh, it's just designers, and we bring our iPhones and we all show each other what we're what we're working on, because then we don't have to worry about it. They, you know, because it's not going to be published. It can just be grist for the mill. It also raises this issue that that I'm I'm curious to hear your your take on. Often, when I'm having conversations with with designers, they talk about how our industry lacks the the, the critical element. That uh, mm -hmm. unlike the, the right the world of art, where so much is written just about talking about art criticism, love this, don't like this, why is this important, why isn't it, why this should be forever in the in the collection that sort of thing and i feel as though there aren't there aren't publications or places that that hold up what is the truly great work and that again we're seeing so much of the celebrity driven work or we're seeing so much of the work that can be published for various reasons uh versus somehow getting informed about who are the really great designers what's the work they're doing how do we see it and how do we learn from it yeah that's a big that's a big problem but the, the critical piece is as you say a very big problem i cannot imagine how one would go about it without it i was having a discussion with my son just a couple of days ago about movie criticism and he was saying something to the effect that oh, well, I love that movie. Why would that person say that? That's just dumb. <laughs> and they, you know, that being a critic is just so so sad because you have to find these negative things. And I'm like, no, no, honey, don't confuse being critical with critical thinking or criticism with being critical. You can, it could be a rave review, but mm. it's talking about the art. What What is so difficult about that, having criticism for interiors is that would really drive people out of publishing oh yeah which brings us to television you know at some point 
TV is going to have to contend with the world of interior design in a serious way. Mm. It's very tricky because there's the layer of like odious rich people versus non-rich people. Obviously, decorators are working for people with a lot of money. So how to show it, how do you express it, how do you hail it, and how do you discuss it critically without it becoming a sad indictment of classist America or living or, you know, like, how do you, how do you keep it, the conversation, a high-minded art conversation? We now know how to speak about food because of all of those food shows. You yes. know, we talk about flavor profiles. <laughs> I mean, my kids, <laughs> my kids will talk about flavor profiles and they will refer to umami, you know? <laughs> uh, and that's just very ordinary talk for them. So, yeah, TV is going to have to contend with us at some point, and we're going to have to figure it out so that we can have those discussions that you are referring to. Because those discussions people have written in books, there's some great books that discuss these things, but not everybody can read all of those books all the time. You know, if, if in our media we turn to a screen, then our screen has to be up to the task. Yeah, and and I I think though all of that would be uh, would be make for very beneficial conversations. I want to shift gears a, a little bit, and in the context of all of this, I want to hear your thoughts about. So we're we're just starting out in the new year, and one of the things that that we saw a great deal of at the end of 2023 was all of this sort of look back, look forward, the trends that we're going to be seeing in the coming year. All of the big shelter publications said, look out for metallic tones, look out for more curves in like, furniture. Like and look out, look out and duck. <laughs> well, like it's coming at you. Uh, let, like it or not, here comes brown, here comes, I, I mean, so I wonder what you, what you make of trends and those sort of forecasts and and do they play a meaningful role in how you think about design or or or, or the work that you do um well the job of magazines is to pull together images and put them out at spaced intervals during the year they have a bunch of projects that they have in front of them at any given time and they assemble issues that create an issue of breadth, but also like an organized thought so that mm. each issue has a sensibility, a flavor, a point of view. And they do this however many times a year. So they need to sit down with all of that and impose the structure onto the issue to make the issue successful, right? Right. So that is an imposed structure. First of all, it means that the metallics or the browns or the round furniture had to have been used for them to then assemble them. So that means they were done like at least two years ago. Mm. I mean, you can't decorate the house. You can't build a house, decorate the house, photograph the house and have the house published that fast. So all of these trends are actually on a time elapse. You and I have been looking at these curved rounded sofas for the last at least four years, if not right. six. So it's not a trend. It's not an immediate trend. We've seen it. So it's more like a recap of, hey, guys, this is what we've all been looking at for the past year. We all know the trends are not to be listened to unless you're going to change your house every year. 
And if you do want to change your house every year, please call me. <laughs> I'm your gal. Exactly. <laughs> like, I am so excited to redo that sofa for you every year. But um, yeah, nobody's nobody's changing it that fast. So trends trends are a device and a strategy. The declaration of them is a strategy for people. It is not, I don't think, observable truth. So I could say to you that just like you know, Memphis style, thanks to um, Sasha Bykoff, mm. we saw that coming. Those of us who were in New York who went to that Kips Bay and saw her staircase, we saw that coming between Sasha and Kelly Wurstler years before they were declared trans because we had seen those iconic moments. The curved furniture that, that, again, Kelly Wurstler has been using or that uh, Bridget Romanek used mm. in Gwyneth Paltrow's California house. And certainly Martin Lawrence Ballard has been using those Italianate modern curved upholstery shapes for a while now. So that's who the magazines and we are, we did see it coming because we saw those spaces and they immediately hit us in the gut right? And, and it resonated and we saw them as new and exciting. And those all came after Villanecki kind of hit the design world in a harder than usual way 10 years ago when I Am Love came out. Uh, one of the other things that, of course, gets talked about a lot as we turn the calendar over to the new year is uh, a little bit of looking back, but also looking forward and and making resolutions or thinking about ways that we might do some things better in the coming year. You do you make resolutions for yourself? Do you do you think about a, a new year and things you want to do differently, or do you think, oh, this year I really want to what? I do. I do. And I have some things I want to do that I'm not going to tell you about because I don't want to jinx them. But yeah, I'm very <laughs> excited about the new year. Okay. And I think given how great our community is, I think it would be great to have a couple of more community organizations among us. Why do I think that? I think that, you know, we're, we're here on the business of home there are still some business of home issues that decorators and designers and architects could be sitting together, hammering out together. Mm. I think that there are still some people out there who don't pay their bills. And I think the design community has to figure out once and for all what the response to that should be. Well, and, and it sounds like, I mean, you, you, you referenced there are, some, there are some real business of home issues that you think people it would be beneficial for, for designers and architects to get together and, and discuss. What do you, what, what do you, besides uh, perhaps well-known people not paying bills? What, what um, think? I think it was great in the past year that you had to start being transparent about salaries. In, mm. in addition to that being great for young designers getting jobs to, to get to know if they were getting a fair shake. I think it's great for employers now to have found out what the other employers are doing. So now that that bandaid has been ripped off, I think there's a very fruitful conversation for us all to have about uh, how we structure our company companies in, in those terms. Mm. Um, the really interesting thing, which is not at all 
news to you is going to be how the hell is AI going to hit us this year? Exactly. Well, I'll tell you the first thing it's going to make tough is we're going to have to make our presentations much more sophisticated. Mm. The thing that we're going to have to remember about AI is the same thing that we have to remember when we read a magazine and they forecast a trend. AI can only generate what you have put into it, right? At least at this moment. Mm. Um, So if you write, uh, somebody was introducing me at a talk and there was a lovely introduction. And I said, thank you so much for your lovely introduction. She said, oh, I had chat GPT write it. And then I realized that it wasn't lovely. It was just a regurgitation of things I had put out (laughs) (laughs) Um, online, you know, on your bio or some description of yourself. So if we don't want to become stagnant and just have brown rooms and round upholstery, we're going to have to be vigilant about inputting all kinds of styles into our AI data bank so that what we spit out doesn't look too homogenous, so that it really, really looks so that there are really rich choices to draw from. The fresh ideas that AI needs are the old ideas. The things that don't have a digital footprint, the things that were photographed on film, the yeah. things that were only drawn, because they're not going to be able to cull it from what they've got. Um, actually, that could be one great thing that AI, if there were a series like a Great Rooms series, mm. and it had a person behind a computer taking these old film images of places like Grousset and creating them on AI for people to see, because among people my age, we know the same great rooms, right? But a lot of them have been pulled apart and you can't see them anymore. So I will always know, my my friends and I will always be able to talk about Kenny Lane's apartment or Bill Blass or Givenchy or the Johnson Museum or Anne Bass's apartment. You know, like all of the things that the design world is of a certain era, we all know those houses. We got to make sure that the people who are the best and the brightest have those rooms in their data bank, even if they forsake them. You know, even if they say, okay, I see what you did here. Great. This is a great room. Now I'm going to do something totally different. So uh, in conclusion, it sounds like you're you're upbeat for the coming year. You've got some things you want to do. You can't uh, you can't share them too much, but uh, no, no, I am a, I'm just a superstitious person. I have high hopes for the future. I think mm. for all of us, the best thing we can do is always try a lot of different things. Don't be scared to fail, uh, though it's certainly don't aim for it. It's no fun to fail. But we should be trying different things. We should be getting together more. We should start a, a new you know, business of home. Let's have a business of home designer group salons where we talk about under the cloak of secrecy, <laughs> the cloak of trust, <laughs> where we talk about billing and stuff when we feel like we can put our let our hair down and let us the old people, me, not you, Dennis, because you're a child. Thank you. But, Thank uh, you. you know, let me yeah. share my war stories with younger people. And, and I want to hear what younger people have to say to me. No, I, I think that would be most welcome. And I am I am sure that were we to tell people that uh, Alexa Hampton is going to be at the Business of Home Salon and we're going to discuss uh, the, the issues of the day, people would be people would be lining up. And I think it would be beneficial for, for all concerned. So... 
Let's see if we can make that happen. Yeah, but let's not get carried away with the lining up. <laughs> be, be available to fail. <laughs> It'll be you and I in a back room with a bottle of gin. <laughs> And we're back. We're getting to the end of the show here, but before we go, we'd like to take a second to highlight anything in the industry that might have caught our eye. Fred? Cordless table lamps, or rechargeable <laughs> table lamps, as they're sometimes called, caught my eye in a big way uh, over the past couple weeks. Um, it was sort of spurred by the fact that Steele Marku, the editor-in-chief of Veranda, you know, in one of her many predictions for 2024 that uh, we published in an article this week, talked about, she talked about a bunch of different things, but one of the things she talked about was the rise of cordless table lamps. And it's funny because I've been noticing that as well. I took a call with this British company called Pookie that's coming to the U.S. in, in the next in the upcoming year. They have yes. a crazy big line of rechargeable table lamps. Every time I go to a new restaurant, they've got the more beautifully designed rechargeable table lamp. It's, it seems to be a real growth area of the industry. The design is getting really good. There's lots of cool uses in the home, like on a bookshelf where you can't fit a cord. I think it's going to solve a lot of problems that designers have, have been dealing with about where to where to put a socket. So I don't know. I think that's a cool thing to watch in the year ahead, and uh, it's, it's caught my eye. What about you? What do you think about cordless table lamps? I love cordless table lamps, and it's I love going to a, a restaurant where they have just little tiny lamps that that give wonderful light but that don't have anything around them and and, and make it very easy and, and manageable so I'm, I'm i'm a big fan and i and i hope we get more of that in the coming year i i think and in fact i'll go on to say i know we will get more of that in the upcoming <laughs> year uh what caught your eye this week uh something that caught my eye this week was there was a new york times end of year roundup piece that uh showed 2023 in 10 charts and number seven on the 10 chart list was how much smarter AI got from the beginning of the year to the end of the year in 2023. And so they made a comparison of ChatGPT 3.5 to the new ChatGPT 4.0. And what they found was that its ability to pass the bar exam had improved by 80%, its LSAT scores improved by 48%, and its uh, GRE verbal scores had improved by 35%. But the number that I thought was particularly striking was that when GPT was first developed in 2018, it had 117 million parameters. ChatGPT 4 this year has a trillion parameters so it's uh it's grown by leaps and bounds and i imagine that growth is going to continue in the coming year what do you think fred well how to do on the ncidq exam that's the one that's <laughs> the one i care about um yeah i mean certainly we are in for a lot more ai uh developments and conversations on the thursday show at least until we were replaced by uh Dennis GPT and Fred GPT. So we'll keep talking. <laughs> we'll keep talking until that day. Sounds good. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.